Hey everyone, welcome back to How They Train. Today I'm joined by semi-regular co-host, ex-Ironman 70.3 world champion, and angry yet wise man, Timbo Reed. Reedy, what's happening in your world? Uh, not much. I am in Switzerland, currently pretty angry actually. I um supposed to go and race Poland 70.3 this weekend and rang up Lufthansa Airlines, big shout out to them, and booked my bike onto the flight and then found out... Uh, a few weeks later, when I checked yesterday, they'd only booked my flight halfway to the destination. So from they didn't book it onto the second flight, the connecting flight, and then I wasn't able to fit a bike on that next flight. So um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get there. Fucking hell, mate. Your bike stories just keep happening. Oh, I just think at this point, post-COVID, if you can avoid flying, you should avoid flying at all costs. Take a train, hot air balloon, whatever you can take, just do that uh and we're joined by a professional triathlete uh, and now a professional cyclist or ex-professional cyclist gone back to professional cycling actually curious to see what he identifies as um cam worth cam this podcast <laughs> called how they train and and i've wanted to chat to you for for ages because uh i think you might have one of the most interesting stories of how your training year and, and training life looks like in uh, in the endurance sports world yeah, that was quite an interesting uh, introduction to start with. So we're off to a good start. Yeah, I honestly, um, I'm certainly not one of those non-binary people that you know doesn't identify myself with anything. <laughs> um, I, de- I do, uh, I do. You know, when I'm a cyclist, I'm a cyclist, and when I'm a triathlete, I'm a triathlete. I, you know, I've, I've tried to certainly go by that out of respect to both sports. I, I got a bit of a, probably a kick in the teeth at times over the past you know, a couple of years when I've tried to jump between both of them, you know, quickly, you know, at the highest level and um, realise that um, there does require to be a little bit of specificity. It's not like Peacock, you know, just jumping off one bike and jumping on another, even though the tyres are thicker. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I don't really call myself anything special. When I'm on the bike, I'm one of the boys and, you know, race with the boys. And when I'm in a triathlete, I'm... Uh, I'm trying to, you know, take out all the, all the, uh, all the punishment I've copped in the cycling world on all my, all my, all my triathletes. Trying to take out that frustration on them. So, um, yeah, that's no, great. So, something I've always wondered about this is, when you go over to the professional cycling world, are you sort of trying to hide the fact you're a professional triathlete? Because generally, cyclists sort of take the piss out of triathletes quite a bit and don't really think that they're on the same level as them. But then. When you go back to the triathlon world, you're always pumped up as a professional cyclist, like it's a really glorified mm. thing. So it's sort of interesting yeah. how in one world, the other world is is glorified. And then when you go to the other world, the other world is sort of like shamed. Yeah. No, it, and I, and this is no word of a lie, but I can't hide. I, I have so much support in the peloton. I'd say more, you know, as much from other teams and, and athletes as I do from my own, um, from staff, soon as staff people see me in the hotel that's all they want to talk to me about then you know they they know you're, you're on the one of the better teams so they're probably you know depending on what team it is that the manic team manager or doctor or you know masseur whoever's come up to say hello we're probably going to keep you know give them a hiding in the bike race the next day so they don't really want to talk about that but everyone wants to talk about kona and you know whatever race i've just done or remind me of a you know a race that I did at some point where one of their friends was watching and um the people have got friends that do the sport professionals age groupers whatever 
a lot of people want to ask for tips, you know, for a friend. But then even in the peloton during the race, um, you know, every single race without fail, you know, minimum five, ten guys will, you know, start up beside me and ask me how the preparation is going towards Kona. I guess it's a bit like cycling, you know, the tour is the biggest thing. And in triathlon, you know, the reality is Kona will always be the biggest thing. So, you know, that's what everyone's interested in. And and I guess I've shaped my, you know, as we you'll, you know, know, I've got a bit of a different part into the sport and it's very much more, you know, Kona is sort of everything to me. And that's, that's what I fully focus on. And, and fortunately I seem to have, you know, performed, you know, reasonably consistently at that over the years when I've been there. And so, um, yeah, it's incredible how respectful and um, supportive the peloton is towards cycling. And I would imagine, and I would say that, uh, you know, just being such a trailblazer that I am, I think I've managed, I finally, I finally, after all these centuries of, of the hatred between both sports, um, built a bridge. You know, I think we can actually, you know, look about, look at becoming friends going forward. Hey, Cam, when you were, like I think it was like 20, 2019 when you came fifth at Kona or 2000 and, 2019, is that right? Yeah, 19. And yeah, so 19. Yeah. when you, how did the whole process of going from being fifth in the world at the biggest race in, in triathlon, like really looking like uh, the future is just bright for you in triathlon, like I think that year you really went from someone who was just sort of looked at as going to be off the front on the bike and, and who knows what will happen from there to like, oh, this guy's a – legit chance to win this race how did it then happen that you um suddenly are back in the in the pro cycling world racing for the biggest cycling team in the world like how did those conversations first take place where was your like were you going back and forth with it for a year or did it just happen really suddenly can you like tell me the details and how it all played out yeah well uh, to be honest i guess it it sort of came out a little bit we talked about it you know when I got back into the sport. So back in, you know, in, in 2017, when I was, I was training with Chris and, and Reedy will no doubt recount the amazing day we met him in, uh, in Nimbin. He threw me and I met up with him in Nimbin. That's a great, you know, um, advertisement, isn't it, for Froomey and uh, on our training ride, passing through Nimbin, on our way to Byron Bay from uh, Mount Tambourine. But um, Had to steer them away from the dodgy cookies. Otherwise, we would never have made it back. <laughs> 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 I've taken Reedy's content, all these preparation times out the window now. But um, yeah, the, we we went through there and um, had a you know we had a great camp. You know, I mean, just to paint a picture, you know, that threw me and I was staying at Mount Tambourine with our coach Tim Kerrison, and we had a long ride that day. And, and Kero just said, "How about we ride to Byron?" So I said, "Oh, I've got a mate in Byron," and you know, sent Reedy a message and told Froomey we'd have a mate that would meet us halfway. <laughs> and the day before, actually, Froomey had. Um, We'd been on another ride um, in Binnaburra, after Binnaburra, and we actually did a bit of a trail run. Like we ran like 21k. Now he must have rolled his ankle. I went behind him, and he must have rolled his ankle about 37 times, I reckon. <laughs> and he was so sore the next day. Then we're going to ride to Byron Bay. So when we picked up Reedy, I said, "Right, let's chop off on the way in," knowing he was on the ropes. And yeah, so Reedy and I actually dropped through me, <laughs> but then poor old Reedy punched So he had like about a 30 second window of glory where through was dangling off the back <laughs> and then poor old Reedy punched <laughs> So he couldn't sink the boot in. So um, 
Yeah, Reedy could have actually been in my position actually at that point. It was sort of touch and go, but it kind of got ruined for him by his dodgy, dodgy um, obsession with speed and latex tubes and God knows whatever else he puts in those tyres of his. Funny thing about that was the team, uh, Kero was behind, was it Kero behind us? And yeah, it was Kero, yeah. And um, I got a wheel underneath me, a, a fresh wheel underneath me in about 20 seconds flat. But hey, it was a tubular tyre and it must have been at about 160 PSI. And the rest of the ride was just like my teeth were falling out with how hard you guys were running those tyres. I was a bit shocked that... Um, I just shocked it. <laughs> like, threw me like my weight. I couldn't get over how uncomfortable he was riding the wheels and how he was even staying upright. Yeah, yeah. Well, unfortunately, he does have trouble with that at the best of times. But um, yeah. Anyway, so sort of more back to your question. We had that camp, and as you can tell, it was it's actually a great environment. And I, you know, fitted in quite well as Reedy did. You know, we had we had just have a great time. It is just you know a bit of a boys' club, I guess, and. At that point, they actually asked me if I was interested in coming back to cycling. And um, I said, no, I happily left that behind. But I was, you know, keen on the triathlon stuff. And so we, we got stuck into that. And, um, and you know, and as Tim said, you probably need more time focusing on swimming and running than you do on cycling And at that point. And so, you know, that was what we did. And, and we thought, oh, I'll go on the cycling team maybe in a year's time. You know, and, and then the first year went, you know, reasonably well. I qualified for Kona and et cetera. And then I was like, okay, now you've you've led in Kona. Now it's really learned to run. So all of a sudden the next year was all about running and and building that up, 18, and then that rolled into 19 as well as I as I did start to really progress. So it was more that um I think I probably, you know, just the idea that I looked like I was a genuine chance to potentially, you know, challenge for the title in Kona. Um, sort of delayed the 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 inevitable of the team, you know, wanting to put me back on the roster, and and that and that part was sort of, as I said, kind of always sort of there because I'd often be at a camp, and even that camp, you know, even when Reedy and I were there with with Froomey, they went off to the Sun Tour as it was then. So Froomey had missed Tour Down Under that year, and he did the Sun Tour, and they were a rider short. And of course, the thing was, oh, I wish we could just take you, you know, like, because I've just been there doing the training camp. And then obviously, I moved back to Europe in 18. Well, I spent a lot of time here in 17 too. And often you'd be out on a training ride and they'd be heading to a race. There'd be a rider short. The conversation just kept coming up. So finally, at the end of 19, when I was fifth in Kona, as you say, I'd, I'd sort of started to get more consistent with my running. You know, my swim has stayed pretty stagnant, to be honest, since I started the sport. Um, it was, you know, I was at a point where I was, I guess I was somewhat established in the sport and Dave, Dave Brailsford actually sat me down. They invited me to the team camp in Mallorca, you know, leading to the 2020 season. And he said, um, just asked me if I wanted to, you know, come back and how that, you know, I saw that looking and, and I said, you know, I, I, I happily left behind racing, being a cyclist full time, that being my life, you know, I'm obviously very happy doing what I'm doing. Um, having said that, I love being around the guys. And when they, when I am at a camp and they do go to a race, I do wish I was getting on the plane with them. And I said, so, you know, if there's a spot on the roster for a guy that, an extra guy that uh, you can just call upon whenever you need someone, I'd love to do that. And Dave said, well, you know, as soon as, you know, at the moment the team's full and that was the end of 19. 
Um, so 2020 looked like I wouldn't be on the team. It looked like it would be the year after. Um, he said, the moment we've got the spot available, it's, it's yours. And because we'd really, we really think that'd be, that'd be great. And, um, you know, and his, his felt was, you know, I'd been good with the group, you know, training. I've spent a lot of time with Froomey first up during that period. He won all three grand tours on the trot, finally won the Vuelta, then won the Giro. Um, obviously then 18, they put me with G quite a lot. You know, we had a camp in LA. He came and trained with me there and, you know, turned him into a man. And, um, yeah, he, he obviously went on to have the success he had. And then once I moved to Andorra in 18, obviously we've had the young guys here. So originally it was, you know, Pavel Sivakov was one of the first, spent a lot of time with him. And, um, and then, then Teo, you know, uh, the COVID year, obviously more recently, Tom Pidcock, um, you know, his, his girlfriend's actually our, our boy's babysitter. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a really great little unit we've got. And, and um, Dave was keen to, you know, see what it would look like, you know, that training, the element I bring to training with the guys, I guess the experience I've had probably more failures and successes over the years and, and understanding that I am keen to point out to them where I've gone wrong and, and trying to help them not make the same mistakes um, and, and take that into the races and see if I can apply that to the team you know, bring something to the team environment at, at the racing level as well. And um, and that was how it worked out. So, you know, as I said, it all happened a year earlier because we had a rider, Vassal, Vassal Kiryanka, who had a heart issue, and that was the beginning of 2020. Um, the team were keen to have him, you know, deactivated from the roster just, you know, for health concerns and obviously for him to focus on his health. And um, And it's outside of the transfer window. So there was basically a deal made with the UCI because I was already on the testing pool with Ironman. Um, and, and the fact that I'd raced before without any issues, the UCI, you know, said, Oh, it's obviously no problem to put Cameron on the team and take him off. And yeah, I was in LA training with G, you know, last place you'd expect to be in Hollywood. And um, you get a phone call from, um, yeah, it was from Carson Jefferson, one of the senior management, to say that, uh, oh, we, <laughs> we're putting you back on the roster because uh, Kiri's got a heart problem. And, um, yeah, we think it'd be great if you raced as soon as possible. So um, as you're in LA, you can get back to Australia and do the Cadell Evans race uh, in a few days. So <laughs> it all happened pretty fast. And, um, yeah, I guess being in LA is, uh, uh, you know, I'd spent a lot of time there and that place has been pretty good to me in recent years. And, um, it was pretty cool being there when all that sort of uh, came together and and yeah, instead of the apprehension to get back in the peloton, I was um, I'd certainly that had been replaced with a fair bit of excitement at that point because I was confident that um, I was at a good level in triathlon and I could afford to you know take a bit of a gamble now and see if we can find a few extra percent from from racing you know in the world tour at, at that level and doing doing a sport that's well out of your comfort zone. Um, and um, and seeing how seeing how we go. So yeah, long answer I know, but uh, <laughs> sorry. Trying to put myself in your shoes at that position where you've just came fifth at Kona. I think you won Ironman Italy just before that as well. And um, yeah. and and you you sort of would have to be thinking like fuck, I'm on here. I, like 2020 can be a big year for me. But then you've obviously mm. been a pro cyclist for I reckon you were a pro cyclist for over 10 years, weren't you? Back in the day, and you've, yeah. you're training with. Froomey and Richie Port and Garant Thomas and Pavel Sivilkov and all these like 
beast and so you're in that environment and you must be having fun and thinking like oh, i'm training pretty well with these guys like are, are you is the decision mainly uh I just really have unfinished business there and want to see how I can go. Are you worried that, hey, this might affect the, the trajectory of my triathlon career? Is it is it purely a, there's just fuckloads more money in cycling and if I can get these guys to offer me enough, it's just definitely better for me financially than, than triathlon and it, it sort of secures my future. Where, where was your head at in terms of actually making the decision? As a kid, you know, I always wanted to do every sport. I think like every kid, you know, and, and you, you, um, I genuinely, you know, it was always a goal of mine that I never understood why I couldn't do all, all of them at once. You know, I mean, obviously you learn as you grow up because you, you just not, you know, it's hard enough to do one, let alone do two. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I guess that was, and then when it became a possibility, you know, when there was more heavy discussions about it, the more the realisation you could do it. Um, obviously, then, you know, you have to, I had to take a real, you know a deep breath and sort of without getting overexcited about the fact that oh, i'm just going to do two sports at once think about okay if you're going to do this you've got to do it properly so you know how does how does um how is this going to help your triathlon it wasn't the other way around there was there was no goal of, of going back to cycling to to prove anything i guess in essence i don't one thing i didn't like about cycling was you know the way people fall out of the sport and they disappear and guys think if they take a break they can't come back i always felt that's ridiculous like if you're a world to a cyclist and you're a genuine world to a cyclist that means you're one of the best in the world it's like you know you're playing in the afl you don't take if you take five years off and decide to come back you know you don't go and play in the vfl you only come back to play in the afl and 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 that's normal you know and and so i guess there was always that little, you know, um, thing there to say, well, all these people say that, but I'll show you, you can come back. <laughs> Not only did I come back, but, you know, came back with the team that I did as well. And, and then since then, um, I'd say completely unrelated to myself, but you've seen a few riders take some breaks and come back to the sport. And, um, and, you know, been, been, you know, that's, that's worked out quite successfully, but I, yeah, it was doing well in triathlon. And obviously I'd finally done a couple of races where it had panned out as I wanted, which was 19, you know, the first one against, against Reedy and, and Port Macquarie, you know, um, and then obviously more so Italy was like the dream race for me, the way I always thought, felt that I could, you know, the level I could get to and race, you know, have a, have a quite a good swim, get in front on the bike, you know, really control the run and finish feeling great, you know, and, and, and that was like on the build up to Kona. And then obviously then, you know, was, was fifth there. Um, but I don't know why I, I just don't seem to be the sort of person that um, once I've done that, I'm now onto sort of the next thing. So even though I'd had that success in, in Italy and it felt great winning and winning that way, you know, I was more focused on trying to figure out how to win Kona now than, than worrying about, you know, trying to keep winning as many Ironmans as I can all over the world. That's not really what drives me. I, you know, I prefer to be doing what I'm doing at the moment, trying to better myself to, to get to Kona and have a really good crack at it than, than worrying about, you know, being able to go to, you know, South Africa or the US or, or you know, whatever throughout the year and control my schedule and, and race that the way that I'd, um, I'd, I'd built in, you know, developed into. So, I guess, and also I've always looked at, you know, the guys that 
you know, there's a lot of guys that have won Kona, for example, been successful, um, you know, sort of like an opportunity to do things a bit differently. You know, I know I'm not going to win it six times or seven times or whatever that Dave, Dave Scott, Mark Allen have, um, break any records like that. But, you know, if I, if I could win it once, but but do it my own way, you know, do it in a bit of a unique way, um, then that to me is much more motivating than uh, sort of doing it the rudimentary way that everyone else has done it. You know, trying to, I guess, I've never really enjoyed going back to the pigeonhole thing, like, you know, being sort of, you know, specifically one thing. I've always liked to be, you know, yeah, doing it, doing it a little bit differently. You know, when I'm there doing the sport, you're yeah, one of the guys. But um, yeah, I, I certainly like the fact that I take a bit of a different approach to to the norm <laughs> and try and show people that it's possible. Because you know, at the end of the day, I think that's how sport grows and evolves. And 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 those others that um, hopefully look at it and, and you know, it might fit more with their path and the way they want to uh, they want to try and get to be competitive at something. So, um, yeah. Cam, I've got like a thousand questions running through my head and I wish I'd like brought a notepad to write them down about your training because like I said in the intro, I think you <laughs> probably have the most interesting training chat in the world of endurance sport. Um, so just a couple like of quick ones off the top of my head before we really dive into some specifics. Uh, you mentioned Tom Pidcock earlier and, and about how he sort of dives into a lot of different cycling disciplines, but I reckon one of the funniest things that happened during lockdown was his uh, Instagram post where he said he could run or he did go and run a random 13.55K on the streets of, yeah. of London somewhere. Have you uh, yeah. been quite a good runner yourself without being a 13.55K guy ever sort of gone to him and said, like, mate, you just can't run 13.15. Like, maybe let's go do a, a legit one. Or have you had ban- much banter about that? Well, it's it's obvious that there was there was something slightly wrong, you know, with his GPS, and he knew that. And that was why he posted it just to be take the piss, basically. And sure enough, it dragged out all the you know all the trolls. Um, but the reality is, he's got some wheels. And if you watch the um, you know cyclocross worlds from last year, oh this year, sorry, when he ran up those steps, you can see it. You know, everyone could see it. But he can. I mean, and he's. He's been, you know, obviously I work with the guys at Nike, you know, the sort of, you know, their high performance group. And he, um, he's obviously had him in touch there and they're working together and they are, they are looking at him doing actually a proper 5K at some point. You know, the timing of it hasn't really worked. He's also had some knee problems probably since that run because <laughs> as much as people want to say nowhere near that fast, he probably isn't that far off. I mean, yeah, he, he probably, maybe not in the 13s, but very very quick and so um yeah it, he he is definitely one of those generational talents um the size of him you know he's just like perfect for power to weight stuff you know he's actually got some grunt which is sort of sometimes rare in those small guys you know you get in the peloton for example a lot of these small you know climbers who can get up a hill like a rocket ship but so often they can't get to the bottom of it, you know, because of the fight for position, et cetera. He's, he's one of those Richie Port types that's actually got some, some, you know, grunt and muscle to him that can fight his way, you know, into that position first. So, um, yeah, he, he definitely can run. But fortunately, he can't swim. Like, he literally can't swim. He sinks. So that's um, – and, and I've definitely not offered to help teach him. 
either. Not that I'd be a great teacher, but I definitely haven't even suggested that it'd be a good idea that he learns. I think he's uh, plenty busy enough with what he's doing, but I wouldn't be surprised to see him do a proper 5K on the track at some point in the near future. So, yeah. And funny you brought up Nike because that was literally going to be the next question I asked. Like, I've always wondered this. I've wanted to ask you this for like the better part of two or three years. You were like one of the very first guys ever to start running in the Alpha Fly. Like, you were running in the Alpha Fly before pretty much every Nike pro runner. How did that come about? What's the story there? Like, how do you have so many connections? Yeah, well, obviously, I'm, I'm, I work with them. And after 2017, I was, um, I was in LA. Uh, after Kona, I think it was, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was in like November. And um, I was, Tim will know, um, Sam Hurd, uh, he worked at Red Bull. Um, he used to play rugby, I think. And um, he'd been, he was, I think he was actually in Kona that year because they did Red Bull TV thing. And he had got in touch with me and um, asked me, you know, to come in because, you know, they were sort of talking about me, et cetera. And I met Per. Pearl Understrom, who was in charge of, you know, high performance unit there and just said, listen, how could we help you, you know, about, and, and started to talk about me, you know, becoming a Red Bull athlete. And, and I said, well, the most important thing is, is I need to learn to run. And so they just called, um, called, called Brett Kirby, you know, the, the main guy there at Nike. And, uh, and, you know, he thought it was pretty cool that I was there and I was determined to learn to run and, um, they just said, yeah, let's, let's, um, let's get into it. And so we started, you know, started working together then. So, yeah, I guess, you know, he obviously did the breaking two thing, the original one. And, you know, is is um, you know, Elliot and I think there's eight or nine in the group. Um, it's pretty funny looking at the group, you know, the, the other eight plus me, Kumar and, and all these guys. Um, and, um, yeah, but for me, it's like, the running has never been, um, I never question anything, you know, when you've got guys like that in your training group, and you know, we're doing the same thing and every now and then Brett, you know, they're, they're very good in, you know, encouraging me, I guess, because I have improved and keeping me, you know, positive and all of that. But, you know, every now and then he'll just little reality check. And, um, you know, one day there before it was actually before Kona in 19. So just before I went to Italy, and um, he was in our elder app with Elliot because he was doing the 159, you know, the Ineos 159, so having his second attempt at breaking two hours. Final preparations for that. And we both did a two-hour run and I was pretty happy. You know, I, I, it was just like a rolling run and I did, I think I did 31K or something, so just under four-minute pace. And <laughs> Elliot, had, um, he'd run, he'd run 40, 41 in, in two hours. So he was occasionally. <laughs> Of, of breaking it, you know, at Eldorat um, <laughs> a few weeks before the actual marathon. And so, you know, just knowing that these other guys are going through the same, you know, suffering as you, you know, they're, they're not that good because they just wake up and <laughs> happen to be that good. Um, yeah, it's been a great, um, a great partnership with them. And, you know, we've, we've started to develop some, you know, uh, let's, you know, work on some different variations of shoes and stuff over the past couple of years, and um, yeah, and it's you know, cycling shoes now is you know sort of playing around with some different stuff there. It'd be interesting to see if they'll come back to cycling. Um, that's 
you know, ideally the aim um, because that's a great brand, I think, to to support that sport as well. And um, yeah, I've had I've obviously been to Portland a few times now for every year. You know, if they had it their way, I'd live there <laughs> because they love. That's the big thing about Nike compared to all the other you know shoe brands that I guess contacted me as well is you know they'll offer you sponsorship and shoes, um, but but Nike actually want to take an active role in your um, development, you know, in your, in your training, you know, offering you everything they possibly can to make you a better athlete. And, and in fact, I've got a friend at, at Adidas, um, Sam Locke, who I used to row with and uh, we caught up last time I was in Portland and, you know, he, he'd contacted me a few years ago as well, trying to see if I'd be interested in switching to there and, you know, but he even said, I'm really glad you you didn't because, you know, he knew I was there doing testing and we we're talking a bit about what we we're testing um, and, and different things and some of the new facilities they've got there, LeBron building, et cetera. And, you know, he said that, um, you know, that's that's one thing that, that Nike really do, you know, sets them apart from the other brands um, that they, how well they support you. And then because I'm from, I guess, an institute, background you know i'm quite institutionalized through rowing you know you're used to going to you know the ias i remember when i when i went to there moved into the resis back in uh 2003 and barry barnes the australian basketball coach was running the residences then and he just said to me he said listen um you know this place is like a tube of toothpaste the more you squeeze it the more you'll get out of it and i think um you know, that was one of the greatest things I think anyone's ever said to me as far as, you know, utilising the resources around you. And and obviously Nikes are quite endless. And so, you know, there's like the the, the commercial side and the shoe side, et cetera. But to me, the most important thing, and, and that was why, you know, at Red Bull, I was interested in being part of Red Bull was because of the high performance support you'd get. And obviously once I was with Nike, I didn't really need to worry about that so much because theirs is just so incredibly good. And you obviously don't want to have too many chefs in the kitchen then. And then, um, you know, obviously with Ineos as well, um, you know, the, the parts that Nike can't sort of cover, I guess, you know, which is really cycling related, <laughs> aerodynamics and all that, et cetera. Um, you know, I can plug all those gaps you know in on in on that side as well and obviously there's some training elements that the cycling team is is very high up 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 with so yeah it's it's been a great partnership and um yeah i'm really uh really glad i stuck with them and uh very grateful to purr yeah my first trip to red bull for, for teeing all that up for me and some of the stuff you've said there really flows into my next question you're doing this perfectly it's like you're segueing into them you, you just talked about Brett Kirby, who's like the senior scientist of human performance at Nike. He's a beast. You've talked about Tim Kerrison, who I don't know much about other than what Team Sky or Team Ineos let you know. He's sort of like a in-the-background kind of guy and you hear of him, but I don't reckon many people actually know much about him unless they are in that world because like I certainly follow the sport as much as anyone and, and, and you, sort of, you never see that much of him. Um, so I'd be curious to hear about that, but you said you've you got to be careful not to have too many cooks in the kitchen. I've always wondered how your coaching setup looks because triathlon historically has been a sport where you have one coach and that coach, he, he planned or he or she plans your swimming, your riding, your running, you talk to them, that's it. Uh, maybe you go to a swim squad and, and ride with some of your friends or with a training group. But 
I've never got the vibe that you just have that one person and you're sort of a bit here, there and everywhere and you try this and you try that. So how does your how does your coaching and, and programming actually look? Who who helps you? Is there a head coach? Is it multiple people? Um, who do you talk to about it? Yeah, like all of that. Yeah, well, obviously, yeah, Caro, Tim Harrison has been the, I guess, the head coach. Um, you know, the, the, he's the one that sort of pieces everything together. Uh, and it's funny because since I started racing on the road again, he kind of, as far as in coaching goes, um, it, the bike racing has kind of replaced the, the need for him to think of creative cycling workouts, you know, to prepare me for an Ironman to, you know, the, the bike racing kind of does that for us. So he's, his role has been more, okay, you need more of this right now. You don't need to worry about that, et cetera. Um, then as far as, but Brett, I would say, that's sort of the only program I follow, you know, when we get a clear runway or when we have a good idea of my schedule, even if that's, you know, like these last couple of weeks where I, I couldn't, you know, I didn't have a lot of spare time because I was racing on the bike, you know, Brett's, you know, um, tra- training, the running block is the, is the cornerstone of our training. So, you know, Caro, we wait for that. We wait for what Brett suggests for, for whatever we're preparing for, whatever period of time we've got to dedicate and then sort of start to build in stuff around that. And then Tim will go to, um, yeah, obviously he was with swimming um, before he came to cycling, obviously rowing before that, which is when I first first met him. But, um, yeah, it goes to his group, you know, with Dennis Cottrell obviously work with a lot. Um, and then there's now, you know, Dean Boxall. And, you know, he's, he's actually, Tim is back in Australia now. He's actually been doing some work with Swimming Australia. So, you know, just getting some ideas here and there. The plan was actually for me to be at the camp with them the last few weeks before the Commonwealth Games, but because of COVID and all the restrictions, it sort of just didn't really work out. So, um, um, yeah, but anyway, the, that we've got access to all that information and, and yeah, for sure the running, the, the, the running program, which is, again, why I do a six-day-a-week program because that's how Elliot trains. I mean, we just basically train like I'd be training for a flat marathon, um, but obviously with an Ironman in mind. So, you know, it's six days um, mapped out, a rest day. Um, in amongst those six days, there's one to two, you know, days where I don't actually run, um, just depending on, you know, how much, how hard the sessions are that I'm doing that week. You know, a bigger week, 110 maybe up to 120 kilometers back to sort of, you know, when I'm training hundred K seems to be sort of like the minimum. Um, and, um, and yeah, we, we sort of patch everything in around that. And it was funny because when I went to the welter back in 2020, when they called me into that last minute, you know, I was actually probably one of the riders that handled the race the best. You know, I, I didn't fat drop off. In fact, I probably got better as it went on. And the team were all scratching their heads thinking, what? He hasn't done a grand tour in seven years. What on earth is going on here? And Tim said, yeah, but if you look at his running, he's used to punishing himself six days a week. And the welter that year, you know, it got shortened by a few days because we didn't do the Holland stage. So we had 18 days. So it was six days on one day off. And, um, you know, I actually went running on my day off <laughs> because just to try and keep it ticking over. But it was, it was, it was really fascinating to see. I was so used to that you know, getting up six days in a row and sort of hurting myself that, um, that, you know, whereas traditionally when I used to, you know, just do cycling, you know, it'll often be like a two, three days on one day, easy, two days on one day, easy, or 
or just three on one day. You know, you'd you'd rarely train more than a few days before having a really easy day. And, um, you know, when you're running, especially at that sort of this level, you know, it's, um, yeah, you're always carrying fatigue into the next day. So I'm very used to holding on to that. And then I guess between Tim and and Brett, I actually don't, (laughs) there was a bit of a, with the 159 project, that was a little bit, Brett's idea around breaking two hours and Nike's was, it was more for Elliot to, you know, change movies mindset um and it was why they actually similar thing why they wanted me to try and do a flat marathon at the end of last year which covid stopped as well but they basically wanted Elliot to do this training that's why they developed that shoe you know to allow him to do more training so you know wouldn't get beaten up as much and then um and then obviously go and try and break two hours and he came very close but what it did Elliot then believed he could break it and so their thought was, okay, now he'll go and break it in the race. And that's sort of the objective. And obviously then, you know, Ineos came along and Elliot was very keen on it. They had the idea and Elliot jumped at it. You know, I think from Nike's perspective, you know, they kind of, you know, they'd sort of already done it. And and I don't know if they all saw eye to eye and all that. So, you know, Tim and Brett have never actually had much to do with each other. And I'm a huge, huge fan of the NFL. And I really love, I mean, if I could, if I could dream to be one thing, it'd be a, probably be a college football coach, maybe not in the NFL. I'd love to be a college football coach. I think it'd be cool to be like a, you know, have that, have that role, you know, very influential time of their lives. And, you know, for me, that's a fascinating sport, how that, you know, the whole system works. And, and so I love following the NFL and, and you, you know, I've watched like Bill Belichick and, you know, the Nick Saban, they are these great coaches. And, um, and obviously now Sean McVay, the LA Rams coach and how they talk about it. And basically the, the offense and the defense, they actually generally don't, they're actually opposition, you know, in training, they're actually training against each other all the time to obviously make each other better. And then they go to to the game and play and, and try and win. So I, I kind of, not that I'm saying that, you know, my, uh, there's any, controversy within my coaching ranks obviously not works very well um but you know i guess caro is very much the uh the offense you know he's 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 sort of taken the task of um of of uh having me as best prepared as possible you know through the swim and the bike and then brett's in charge of, of trying to fend him off <laughs> and, and the defense <laughs> to see if we can hang on so um yeah, a long way to again to get to that answer, but that's sort of how it all looks. Hey everyone, it's time for my favorite minute of the show. Thanking those of you who have signed up for Patreon. These are the people who sacrifice a weekly coffee and give how they train a few dollars a week to keep the show alive. I honestly bloody love each and every person who supports the show and cannot wait to thank you all. Every cent goes directly back into bringing you more episodes, better guests, more guests, and providing Patreon-exclusive podcasts, um, yeah, rest assured, none of the money goes into anything that isn't that. Like, yes, I enjoy a cheeky cocktail on a Saturday night, but none of this Patreon money goes towards drugs or alcohol, I promise you. First up this week is Lachlan Earnshaw. Lockie is an absolute legend who creates his own triathlon content over on YouTube. If you enjoy training videos, following someone's training and triathlon journey and, and really just want more content, uh, more triathlon related content, then 
then yeah, go over and give his videos a watch. His channel's just his name and and to repeat that, his name is Lachlan Earnshaw. So yeah, go and give him a follow on YouTube or or check out his videos. They're, they're awesome. I actually watch them myself and and just love the fact that he's he's out there creating triathlon-related content for us all. Um, thanks for supporting the show and, and becoming a best friend over on Patreon, Lock. Next up is Sam Kelly. Apart from having a, an unreal last name, um, Sam's, Sam's another person like me who gets a bit bored swimming. Uh, and so on top of being a, a legend and signing up for Patreon, he, he also sent me a message and asked if I could... Um, upload the mp3 files of every single episode that i've ever done over on the patreon account so that he can download them onto his swimming headphones so that he has something to do to pass the time when he's when he's swimming and i've never related to something more in my life i used to i just i used to get so bored swimming like every single morning and and i i I remember when i was like 15 16 swimming and i just wished i could listen to music but that didn't exist then so consider it done sam um in the next week or two i'll upload all of them just for you and and hopefully they they help uh, passing the time when you're going up and down that black line thanks thanks so much for your support mate and finally today is is laura lee cameron laura is a sydney boss she's a lawyer a triathlete and he's going to kona this year to to compete in the age group world champs uh don't know if she would want me to say what age group, but if you look her up, you'll be able to figure it out pretty quickly. Laura's in Thailand at the moment. She's doing a heat camp over there in prep for Kona. Must be nice. And he's just one of those people who clearly says, fuck it, and works hard to achieve what she wants. And we bloody love that over here at How They Train. Thanks so much, Laura. Um, you're a best friend of the show for life. I, I really appreciate you signing up and, and supporting the show on Patreon. If you want to be like Lachlan, Sam or Laura and support the show on Patreon, then the link to sign up is in the description of this episode and it's really easy to follow. You can also go to the How They Train Instagram where the link is in the bio. Like I said, your support and becoming a best friend of the show on Patreon literally keeps this whole thing going. And, and honestly, it supports my dream of this being what I do full time. And, and, and for that, like, I just appreciate you more than, more than you'll ever know. So yeah, enjoy the rest of the episode with Cam guys. And so say you're training for a triathlon. So you, I'm not sure if you actually specifically trained for St. George earlier in the year or, or, or whether you didn't, but say you're, you've got a, like a goal race that you want to do well at, whether it was St. George, whether it's just Kona this year or, or whether it's been Kona in the past, what does your training actually look like when you get say six to 12 weeks to specifically train for something? Are you still incorporating or is the plan or, or, or have you still incorporated the cycling, the world tour races as part of that training? Like, hey, I'm here to do what the team sort of needs me to do, but really this is my training or do you go away and do like a dedicated block? And then what does it actually look like? Like, so how many how many bike sessions are you doing? What's your bike volume inside of that like sort of 110 to 130k run week you were talking about? What do you actually do? Like how long's your long run? What are your sessions like? And how much swimming are you doing? Like, I just think, I think I always look at your training and th- just want to know like, what actually does this guy do? Like specifically, because it just seems very confusing. And, and like you've said, it's like, it's like no one else is doing what you're doing. It's so unique that, yeah, I, I just, I'd love some clarity around the specifics. Yeah, so obviously be, before um, 2020, so 2019, you know, when I finally was able to handle, you got to remember that running, I, I came from no running background. So, and and that's the other part where Brett has been and his team have been incredible, you know, and that they said to me early on, you know, Elliot always leaves a little bit in the tank for tomorrow. You know, that's how he avoids injuries. And 
you know, if you get injured, it's going to set back this development in your running. So, you know, for example, you know, you go to the track and, and you know, you hear guys doing these crazy times. We sort of established what would be my goal, flat marathon pace, you know. And for us, we say, you know, on an amazing day, maybe it's 2.30, maybe a fraction under, maybe a bit over, you know, uh, somewhere, somewhere there. We don't really know um, because obviously I've got no experience doing that. But so the track sessions, that's sort of what we see as my optimal speed or maximum speed. So the track sessions are only at 3.25, 3.30, full gas. You know, that's me going flat out. Well, it's obviously not me going flat out. I can go quicker, but I don't run any quicker than that. And it's about consistency, being able to repeat the work um, and do all that. So 18, 19, you know, particularly 19 was a, was a case of exactly as you just pointed out, you know, six to 12, yeah, usually six, six to 12 weeks, like normally broken up into a couple of four to five week blocks to lead up for Port Macquarie, you know, earlier in the year. And then also for Italy later in the year, thinking that, you know, then taper into Kona probably didn't quite work out that way. But um, so that was sort of like the more traditional. So then, of course, I'm back on the bike and, okay, so how does that look? And then we decided, right, well, the most important thing is to be ready to do that block of work because we know now that that works. And so, you know, the winter, you know, was a case of getting in a couple of those blocks. So when I'm in the last couple of winters, I've done, you know, a couple of months, two and a half months where I've been doing those consistent weeks. And then the idea being that during the year, you know, when you get that clear runway to prepare for something, you can tap straight back into it. And so obviously last year, you know, I got the opportunity for Copenhagen and, um, which was, you know, the, the sort of tune up for Kona at the time. So from basically now, you know, June, uh, well, yeah, it was actually sort of, yeah, late June. Cause I remember I, I did a lead up race just before the tour de France, um, just a week before, just in case they needed me for the tour. Cause I'm obviously on standby for everything. And then once they didn't need me, I had basically all of July and, and the first part of August. So I had six to eight weeks to train and, you know, obviously things went pretty well there. You know, I was very in control. It was a bit like, you know, Italy, you know, I felt like I could race how I wanted. I was, you know, able to, I loved Delhi and race the marathon, obviously at the Olympics and loved how he just kicked away from me 5k to go. So that I was just sort of taking it pretty steady, waiting for Lionel to get as close as he, as I was comfortable with. I was going to let him get within about 30 seconds or so, and then just you know, take off because I'd never done that before. I just thought that'd be cool. And, um, <laughs> and I, anyway, I, I let him get within about a minute and then took off. I think I won by nearly five minutes. I took all that time in the last UK. It was, it was cool. But for that race, I had that block of preparation. So we're like, okay, we know that works. And then of course, Kona got postponed again. So um, this year, you know, <laughs> we haven't had that. Um, you know, St. George was never even, I was never even going to St. George. I'd actually been planning to do Lanzarote because the idea was that, you know, I was on standby till the end of Brood Bay. We didn't know if I'd do it or not, but obviously I did. And then from there to Lanzarote, I think it was five weeks. So it gave me a chance to do a good block um, to get ready for that. You know, probably a race that would have suited me. But then, yeah, the Ineos corporate asked me to go to Namibia, <laughs> a bit of an expedition with some of their graduates. 
um, hiking and mountain biking throughout Namibia and that sort of clashed with Lanzarote. So all of a sudden, St. George was sort of the only opportunity to do any triathlon in the first part of the year. Um, and so I was like, well, bugger it. You know, I've, I've, um, I'm off to Namibia the week after so I can kind of recover from there and we'll just go along and see what happens. So, no, I mean, I barely swam or ran you know, in, in quite a few months before I went there and it was never even a, a, a focus. I booked my flights, you know, a week before and rocked up and, you know, the result was to be expected. I've never been the sort of person that can flick a switch and just sort of be good. You know, I've always needed to actually do the work and prepare um, and know that I'm ready. You know, if there's any doubts in my mind, then um, they always come out in the race. Um, and so, uh yeah, so obviously this year now, you know, then there was the, the problem with qualification. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was able to – I mean, St. George in some respects was a great was great because it gave me a good kick in the teeth to know that you can't just sort of bounce between the sports and expect to be competitive. You know, having said that, you know, at least I was still a part of the race. I still felt a part of the race. You know, I still was able to swim with the main group and um, – you know, obviously I got off the bike with the guy that won, the guy that came second. So uh, <laughs> as, as Brett said afterwards, he said, well, that's great. That was an awesome race. Cause we know you, we know you, if you learn, if you get your running going, you can win this thing. And that was all he said, you know, he said, that was, that was fantastic. You, you were right there with him. Um, you just got to start, you just got to do your run block and we're going to be fine. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's, it's kind of true, I guess. <laughs> and, um, and, um, and so, um, yeah, I felt I felt the intensity of the of the of the guys. I felt where they were at, you know. And I, I know what I was doing. I know what you know what they'd done to get to where they got, and and then what they did afterwards. So um, so that was invaluable stuff. But also just a reminder of um, you know how I do need to put in that big block of work. And then obviously qualifying became quite a nervous thing because I knew I was still required to race on the road through the last period. And so getting a qualification um, opportunity to race was the biggest challenge. And they had me in Copenhagen, of course, <laughs> leading up to the tour. So that sort of ruled out Nice, um, you know, because obviously I was, I, was, I was doing some VIP stuff and everything with Ineos again, but also in case something happened with COVID and, you know, stuff last minute, whether I need to be thrown in. So I was trying to sort of juggle training over there and um and obviously Vittoria Gastez became um you know one of the very few opportunities to actually um qualify and, and also one of the last so um yeah I was quite relieved to be able to get through that one because I guess that's sort of probably one of the first Ironmans I've gone to you know without really any preparation and, and being able to sort of you know <laughs> salvage a result but to be honest had I not gone to St George I don't think I would have got through that because obviously very similar thing happened. I fell apart the run very early, not quite as early as St. George, but pretty close. And um, in St. George, I just fell apart. And you're like, wow, it's, you know, it's been that day. I'm just, I'm not going to quit, but I've got to get to the finish and just take my medicine and, you know, you know, what do they say, suck up your poison and deal with it and come back better. And so in this case, I knew I needed to come second to qualify. So I was like, right, I'm just going to have to figure this out. And and Reedy had told me a story a young ago. I'll never forget it. He told me about Pete Jacobs winning Ironman's walking aid stations. And I was like, right, I'm going to have to walk these aid stations, just get as much coke in as I possibly can, you know, um, and 
try and, you know, get rid of these, I don't even know if it was cramps or soreness or God knows what it was, but I was out of energy and I wasn't, I couldn't run properly. So I was struggling and, and then jog to the next one, do the same thing. I've got 10, 12 minute lead, got 30 K to go. You know, you just got to hang in there and, and hopefully you'll come good before they catch you or, you know, before two of them catch you. And, um, and that's exactly what I did for the next 25 K. I did exactly that. And, remarkably with with 5k to go i was still leading the race and then you know i saw castelline coming and i was actually starting to feel okay but i was like wow i feel like i've really dodged a bullet here so there's a bit of a gap to the guy and set in third i'm going to let nick catch me because you know i'm more about coming third than i am winning because <laughs> i have to qualify here and uh i let nick catch me i got to 2k to go got a good look at where the third place guy was he was a minute and then obviously just you know, did what I did in Copenhagen, did my big sprint. Um, actually started closing on Nick for a moment, got to a K to go. And then, um, yeah, and then I was, uh, I was, you know, I knew I was home and hosed and could make it to the finish and could cruise because I figured I, I'm not going to lose a minute in the kilometre unless I'm crawling. So um, tried it through and got through it. But had I not have been to St. George and, and realised and looked back and gone, you idiot, why didn't you just sort of, take a deep breath when you didn't feel good slow down I mean I remember Lionel coming past me and saying mate pace yourself be careful you know Lionel's a great guy and I was like yeah 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 you know thinking I can do this I just did Roubaix I can take on you guys kept trying to run and just buried myself into the ground that was a really great learning experience and then so in Vittorio Gasteiz to turn around and run you know 257 having walked you know for 25k of aid stations probably walked a couple of k in total um is is was a huge confidence booster for me um so it means i'm obviously i've got some foundation running there and um you know and i'm really excited now i had to race last week raced on the weekend and now it seems that i've got a clear runway to, to kona which is 10 weeks away which you know it seemed like the stars are finally aligned to, for me to have that preparation period that you know we've we've always felt would be the perfect one you know, a couple of four-week blocks of good hard running and, and swimming and see where we're at. So like you said, at, this, at, at St. George, even though you weren't properly pre- prepared for the race, you were still at the pointy end of the race off the bike. Like you were pretty much the guy who who tried early to light things up along with Sam Long and then you were the guy that dragged Christian along for a lot of it who who ultimately ended up winning and, and Lionel was sort of stuck behind you for, for most of it. Um and then now in this lead up to, to Kona, I'm really curious what your bike training looks like because obviously that's what you do. You're, you're the best cyclist in, in triathlon at the moment. You have been for quite a few years and, and you're a professional cyclist on the biggest cycling team in the world. Do you, do you train – like, does your training look like a traditional triathlete's training on the bike? Like are you on your time trial bike a lot doing some really long specific efforts? Are you sort of – on your road bike a lot, just riding with the boys, like riding with the team Ineos boys and you just let that do its thing. What does it, what does it actually look like in the lead up to your races? Yeah. So the, um, as in lead up to, well, I guess my lead up to, um, to bike races, um, or to, to triathlons. Yeah. It doesn't really, really change. I, I don't spend much time on triathlon bike on the TT bike at all. Probably once a week, maximum, maybe once every 10 days. Um, because yeah, I've tried that in the past and found that I actually, you know, um, 
it, yeah, I actually felt like I went backwards. And just, I guess for me, it's very different because I'm, I'm not new to the sport now. I've been doing it for a number of years. But then again, because I've also been thrown in another sport after doing it for a few years, I'm still pretty, um, yeah, pretty novice to it all. Um, but uh, I spend most of my time on the road bike. It's at least 80%, if not more. And yeah, I guess a lot of that is because of, but it was, yeah, it's always been the same since I came back to, to, to sport because I guess I've always been training with the guys, but I'm sure that adds an element to it. You know I mean? It's like, okay, we're meeting for training. I'm, you know, I'm not going to rock up on my triathlon bike when everyone else is on their road bikes. So I guess just inadvertently that's how it's become, but it seems to work for me. You know I mean? I, I mean, I think we all get a sore back. If, if someone says they don't get a sore back on their time trial bike, you know, in a race, you know, then I'd say they're probably kidding themselves because I think everyone gets a bit stiff and sore when they're, uh, when they're doing an Ironman. Um, but for me, it's never that bad. Um, and, uh, yeah, I find that as long as I do, you know, certainly in this next 10 weeks, I want to be on at least once a week at a minimum. Um, but, uh, yeah, before, well, to put it in perspective, before St. George, I hadn't even ridden that bike since I was in LA. So that was that was February. So I'd ridden it for, you know, two and a half months. I'd just been on my road bike. I hadn't even um, been on a time trial bike at all, just with the way the racing schedule was. So, yeah, I spend very, very limited time normally on the time trial bike and even in the preparation phase. It's um, the one time I do spend on it, though, is uh is very specific you know it's like a you know an, an iron manny type session you know a, a good period of time you know an hour to three hours of, of of pressure on the pedals i'd say um and uh basically yeah just like sort of going as fast as i can on a on a certain wherever i happen to be riding never a, a set pace um or power or anything it's just trying to you know just that feeling of like i'm in a race and accelerate over rises and you know recover down hills or or whatever but very much a race specific type effort um so i i make the most of that time that i do have on the time trial bike and then the rest of the time is just all spent on road bike or gravel bike really i think um <clears throat> there was this perception that sky or ineos <clears throat> were the team of one percenters and uh training with you for the brief periods that I have, I think it really opened my eyes to how much it was more getting the basics done really, really well. Um, would you say that was sort of more Caro's approach? And has that changed, like Caro now not being involved with the team, has that changed your how things work with the athletes and, and yourself? Um, yeah, I mean, as you saw, like Caro's thing was pretty basic. It's like you guys, you know, rest well, you eat well and you train well, you know, and, but, you know, another, another thing um, Kara was big on was don't over recover. You know, he felt like he needed to learn to deal with fatigue. And I guess that was his thing for the tour. You know, it's, um, it's the tour de France and you're going to be tired and you still got to learn how to perform when you're tired. Um, so I remember, I can't remember exactly what we were, we were discussing something about, um, I think it was back in when I was actually at the Big Bear back in 2019 before or 2018 before Kona and something about planning, you know, meals after training or, or ice bars or something. And he said, I oh, just be careful not to over recover. 
uh, because you know that fatigue is part of the adaptation for you know part um which we never really elaborated on it with but i guess like inadvertently because we spend so much time at training camps you know he's a big fan of that camp mentality more so that he is a camp fan of that than altitude i mean he he never really felt like you know two weeks actually does much <laughs> physiologically but he said having you all together in tenerife you know boxing on and training training the house down is is what is what gets the benefits, you know, let alone, not necessarily just sleeping on top of a hill for a couple of weeks. So I guess inadvertently he kind of controls, you know, can control the way the camp goes and, and, and ensuring that we don't recover um, in essence. But um, yeah, it was incredible because as you saw that day, I mean, I, you expected all this science and tech, you know, all this stuff and, you know, there you go. You got like, they don't didn't wrap anyone up like not even Froomey and, you know, and Cotton Wool. It was just um, real, real basic, you know. And even the training, you know, efforts and the way they are. I mean, it's just like doing a race, you know. I mean, it's um, it's very, it, it makes just perfect sense when you're doing it. You know, it's very, it seems all very logical, um, as opposed to you know some of the you know the high you know the sort of high tech or i don't know what the word is but um you know approaches you hear from from other groups it's 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 sort of exactly not what you would expect <laughs> and um and uh from the outside and looking in and you know it's just you know we all have our own pillows we have our own like mattress top races you know like every night you go to bed it kind of feels it should feel the same so you sleep better you know we always have a chef and you know, he, you know, he just cooks good, normal food. You know, I mean, it, it's not, you know, it's not dairy free. It's not vegan. It's not vegetarian. It's not nothing. It's, it's, it's just good food, good quality food. And then obviously it's also one, one big thing for me personally, when I was at liquid gas was, you know, you, I'd eat well at home and do things I think properly. And, and then you go to a race and they'd sort of, tell you that you should do it their way and and that was always a bit of a you know it was something that drove me out of the sport because I'd work really hard and be in good shape and get to a race and all of a sudden be told I'm doing everything wrong and and I've always felt like I never got the most out of myself because I was probably eating something I didn't really want to eat and you know doing things in a way I didn't really want to do them and um whereas at this team you know I go to a race you know my son he's, he's only two but you know he loves green juice and the first thing he does in the morning he gets up and makes the apple and celery juice apple and celery and ginger and um and you know at the races um that's exactly what we have for for breakfast every morning you know and then just oatmeal and you know an omelet or you can have eggs on toast you can have whatever you want instead of being told you need a big massive plate of pasta etc um and then same for dinner it's it's very normal so it's it's um with with uh i guess the sky and caro's approach and then um yeah obviously now with Ineos, it's like what can you replicate you know 365 days of the year as opposed to all of a sudden you got to switch on when you get to a race you know we're we're basically this is how we are all the time um it's very sustainable to to sort of be like this to eat like this to train like this and and that means that I think there's just a lot more consistency in our performance. And certainly there's been, you know, since I've been involved with this organisation, you know, in Ironman, for example, I think I've been very consistent over quite a number of years um, because to me, you know, every day is 
a work day and um and I approach it with the same commitment and everything as I do to to any day that I just wake up and it happens to be race day. You've trained with some like insane climbers over your time, Cam, and, and talking about Team Sky and Team Ineos, just I just can't not ask this question. Like when you're riding with Froomey at his best when he's when he's winning grand tours, like you said, and doing that insane ride he did at the Giro or or riding with Richie Port, who like right through twenty fifteen and sixteen was, in my opinion, the best climber in, in the world and and like Garant when he was winning the when he when he won the tour and and Pavel Sivilkov and all these guys. When you're training with them and you you you're doing rides in the high mountains, do they seem like that when they train? Like are they doing insane sessions that you're looking at and just being like, holy fuck, these guys are just so good or like I just don't understand how they climb that fast or does it not really come across like that in training? No, it's funny because I guess power-wise, and I don't think any of them would tell you any different if you ask them this question, but we are actually all very, very similar. And um, a lot of the time, you know, particularly in the early part of the year, I don't see them. I mean, I train with them obviously during the year, but less and less because we're all off racing, et cetera. But, you know, body weight's a big thing. And and often, you know, with, with Froomey, you know, he might lose five or six kilos throughout the season, you know, from the off-season you know, from, I guess, mid seventies or low seventies down to mid to mid to high sixties. And so, whereas I'll stay in the, in the mid to low seventies <laughs> here and that's where the speed changes, you know? And so I never really get blown away because I know what they're doing. Um, they just say, they just get faster and faster as the year goes on, as they trim up, you know? Um, in fact, it's often the other way around. And I mean, i I'll often put G to the sword when we're training in LA. <laughs> it's um, having a slow start to the year. You know, it's it's quite competitive. And that's why Kero would have me there, particularly at those times. You know, it keeps those guys on their toes. And, um, uh, you know, I had, before the Tour de France, just recently, I spent a lot of time with Tom Peacock, like a lot, you know. Um, and uh, I saw him doing some stuff, you know, in training. And, yeah, he was riding away from me at a, you know, a set sort of effort. And, I was like, yeah, he looks good. And I said to him, I mean, there was only a few guys that I'd seen do that, you know, and Pavel was one, you know, he, he, he's phenomenal. Um, a training Richie, obviously another, um, and, and obviously Froomey, Froomey and G and, and I said, you know, you mate, you're more than capable of, of being very competitive at this tour. You know, I didn't know what that meant, but I kind of felt like he could have been up there on GC and believed he could be, um, obviously ended up doing quite well, but, you know, his last session he did was with me. Uh, we did a big lap. It's called the Tri Nation. So we ride down into Spain. We go along the valley and loop back around through France, back into Andorra, up over, you know, big mountain pass. And I was on the TT bike and it takes a couple of hours sort of to get sort of along the valley and up to back up to France. And yeah, he, he and as Kero had done for many years with Froomey and, uh, and G, when I did this same session, you know, they'd sit behind me on their road bike and they'd sort of do a sprint every every so often, bit of an attack, and then jump back on the wheel. You know, it's kind of like a motor pace, but I guess a more realistic one because I'm actually on a push bike. And, you know, it's pretty cool. Like, Josh Amberg was there too, and we um, we dropped him eventually. But he was sitting behind Tom, and it was pretty cool, like, um, just hearing Tom breathe heavier and heavier every time I'd uh, catch back up to him after this attack. So I'd give it a little bit of a squeeze just to, just to make it harder for him to get on the wheel. And, you know, when we got to the end, we were both cooked. And so, um, 
yeah, it's it's certainly good for my own confidence when you see guys like that going through the same sort of suffering that you are, but you kind of feel like you're, you know, you are at that level. You, you know, you've you've earned, you've earned your right to be there and do that work. Um, but um, so uh, yeah, there's there's every now and then in training, you know, particularly in sort of June. Uh, May, June, where I'll see some things of these guys when they really trim up and they just take off like rocket ships. But the rest of the year, you know, to be honest, we're all pretty, we're all pretty similar. So when it comes to your own body weight and, and the body weight of triathletes, I know both of you guys can, can talk about this and I know Reedy's sort of particularly good at talking about this, but in your, in your mind, Cam, like how much do you think about your own body weight and how it affects performance when you're seeing guys like Froomey and Richie who get like so stupidly skinny before their big grand tours. And, and, and like you're saying, that's like the main reason they suddenly start riding away from you uphill. Do you, do you and your coaches talk about like, well, this is the cycling way to do it. So let's get super skinny and super lean for, you know, the, the six weeks leading into a race like Kona or, or does it not really matter in your opinion in, in in Ironman triathlon? Yeah, we haven't, I mean, Tim and I've talked to, I've talked more about this with, well, I guess with Kara, obviously more being on to me about just being, you know, as lean as possible. I've always been nervous about it because I don't want to get injured and I'm worried with the amount of training I do, immune system, you know, musculoskeletal, et cetera, trying to get on the razor like that. I remember when I was like that, you know, when I was get down to, when I could get down to 69, 68 kilos, you know, I'd get sick. You know, like, um, you know, you, you basically go down to the scent and happen to be, have a sweaty jersey and you catch a chill. Um, so that's that's going back to what, El, you know, Elliot, like Kip Jogi and, and the night guys philosophy is, you know, being able to turn up to training every day. I guess me, you know, worrying about my body weight has been a, a self-preservation thing. Um, you know, Reedy and I've discussed it and he sort of, and I, and I like his approach of you do it at the end. So it's something I've always thought about doing. I just haven't really ever got around to it for a triathlon. <laughs> so, um, But this year, you know, I'm definitely probably going to be a bit more um, accountable, you know, um, being on the scales more often and just knowing where I'm at um, and, uh, and see if I don't think I'll ever get back to, you know, 68, 69 kilos like I used to be. But, you know, instead of 70... 374 maybe i can be 71 72 i know that'll make a big difference in the run and and ideally still be you know still be have the same strength and and everything at that weight which i'm confident i can as i said it's just that that last little bit but it's obviously does add an element of risk which is why i think just in that last few weeks particularly when the training tapers off and and obviously you get into Kona, so it's warm weather and all that. So the chance of getting sicker, a bit slimmer, I'm a bit more confident to have a crack at that. Cam, um, when people ask me what your, you know, what your greatest strength is in, as an athlete, uh, interestingly for me, anyway, it's always been, I feel like you are just so in the moment, like you've got this very present mindset. You don't have any anxiety about the future or worry about the past. It's like, right over what do I need to do right now, today, this moment? Same thing in a race. And also there's almost no emotional toll from racing. Um, I'm, I'm interested, you know, whether that's changed now that you're a dad or even now that you're 38. Um, do, has being a dad changed a little bit 
of your mindset? Have you noticed any shift in um, just, yeah, I guess just being, you were the most uh, in the moment person I actually knew. And, you know, I remember 2016, you finished Cairns Ironman, one of your first pro races. And I think you finished fifth, like an amazing performance given how- 17 that was. 17. 17. 17. And, yeah. um, and you finished the race and you looked at me, I, I was at the finish line, you just came over and said, when's another Ironman in a few weeks? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And you're like, I need to fix up a few things. I've got to, got to race again in a few weeks. There was no emotional toll. It was just like, uh, most people finish an Ironman, they retire from the sport for at least three days. <laughs> Have, has there been any, like, what do you attribute that mindset to? And has it changed since you've become a dad? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, to be honest, like, go back to Lord Howe. And you remember um, Jack Breton or Julie Breton's dad. I was, I was playing golf with him one day and it was on the last hole. And I, I was having a really good round and I started to fall apart a bit. I think the last few holes or something happened. And, and on the last hole, I sort of need to make this putt to still have a really good score. And I missed it. I stood there and looked at it. And he said to me, he said, move on. You've already made that putt. You don't get it again. And, and I've never sort of forgotten that. It's like once you played your hand, you played it and, and get on with it um, because you can't, you can learn from it, but it's obviously what you do next that's uh, it's most important. And then, you know, more recently I've heard, I read a, a quote somewhere about, um, you know, depression is, is looking at what happened. Anxiety is what's worrying about what's, you know, ha- going to happen, you know, be, be in the moment. And, yeah, I really try and, you know, um, Steve Hawkins, well, it was actually Steve Hawkins' brother, Tim, who was my rowing coach, who tragically lost his life in the Bali bombing. But he said to me, when we we're talking about, at the time, it was about making the uh, the Olympic team. And I'd say stuff about, you know, what I was going to do if I made it. And I think it was probably going out and having fun and whatever. And um, he said, you know, worry about what happens after the finish line once you've crossed it. You know, let's focus on the process of getting there first. And just little things like that along the way have seen set at key moments to me. You know, started from Jack. I was probably eight, nine years old. I would have been young, maybe 10. Um, but I've never forgotten. And, uh, and I think, you know, when you do particularly cycling, you know, where you have a lot of days where things don't go to plan. <laughs> for anyone really even Pogacar I mean I was with him on the weekend in uh, San Sebastian we hit this climb like 60k to go and actually I led the group onto the climb fighting for position with them and ripped up this thing and I blew up and then just after that he blew up you know he basically stopped pedaling and you know it, these guys they have they have bad days you know I mean in in, in cycling you know you race enough you know, you're going to have, you're going to have a number of them. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I guess going into Ironman and, and that ability I learned early on to be able to race often, you know, if something does go wrong in a race, like I said to you, uh, yeah, okay, let's go and find another one and get it right. And I guess that's why Vittoria for me has been one of my, one of my, you know, I was really, really happy with that race because for starters, St. George happened. So that was a big, bit of a kick in the teeth. And I desperately wanted to go and set it right, you know, and, and I knew that I wasn't in the form to go and do some phenomenal performance, but at least, you know, put, 
fix something that I did wrong there. And obviously the biggest thing that I did wrong there was, you know, I didn't swim great. And then obviously I kind of gave up sort of too easily on the run or, you know, didn't manage myself when I was falling apart. So to go and put that right as quickly as possible. And, you know, it sort of obviously took a number of months because of the cycling schedule and obviously the team sending me all over the place. Um, but yeah, that's, that's certainly, um, yeah, just in life in general, because as I said, once you've, once you've played your shot, you've played it, you don't get it back. You just got to learn from it and, uh, and, and, and do your best to get the next one right. Hey, Cam, uh, some, something I think everyone will be fascinated in is you had that sort of like, like, like beef with Lionel Sanders. Let's call it that. Let's pretend it was real beef, even though you're, you're clearly yeah. pretty good friends. Um, and now with like the new like wave of triathlon that's sort of taken place since your fifth place at 2019, like I would say since that Kona to now, there's been like this massive shift in the level of, of Ironman racing. I think there's no easy win anymore. And, and I think like St. George yeah. was really high level and Kona's going to be really high level. How much time do yeah. you spend thinking about like Christian and Gustav and Jan and, and, and the level that triathlon's at now? And do you think that with this sort of like double life as professional cyclist, professional triathlete, you can compete with guys like that at, at big races? Yeah, so my biggest thing and another reason I never really wanted to go to George or hadn't planned to was I wanted to – I felt one of my biggest assets this year would be keeping my powder dry and the guys not knowing what I could bring. I, I'm confident what I can bring. I know what I did in, say, St. George and – sorry, not St. George, in uh, in Italy back in 19 and um, Copenhagen last year, even Kona, you know, 19. Um, and then obviously refining that, you know, I've – as we've touched on, I've got a pretty amazing group of people behind me um, that I guess they, you know, back me for a reason and they believe in me as I believe in myself. Now, it's interesting, you know, it's like with cycling, people talk about the level being crazy, et cetera. The reality is that it hasn't changed really at all. The top guys are still doing very similar things to what they've always done. You know I mean? Richie Port. You know, he was third in the tour in 2020. I mean, Richie's been at that level for a very, very long time. It wasn't like he all of a sudden stepped up. He'll even tell you himself. It's just that, you know, between, you know, I guess two and 30, you know, in the peloton, there's so many more good guys now, you know, all at that level. So the depth, the depth of talent has increased. And across the entire peloton from rider number 50 to 300, it's very tight now. You know, you just get you'll hit a climb, you'll go full gas and you'll still have a hundred guys. Whereas in the past we had 30 and the actual speed hasn't changed at all. It's just that um, these guys, you know, there's just more good guys. And, um, and in fact, because of that intensity of the racing, the speed can't change because, okay, the overall intensity of the race has gone up. So the speed will go up. So you'll end up averaging for me, you know, we get a lot of days where we'd average a couple hundred Watts back when, back in the day, you know, a breakaway go and you just sort of roll it back. Whereas now there's just always someone wanting to race. It's pretty rare. We don't average 300 Watts every single stage, but that means that the top end guys are a bit more fatigued. So they can't actually do anything crazy. You know? So maybe if we raced like we did in the old days, you know, where we take it easy and then people go ballistic, you might have some crazy climbing speeds, et cetera, but because everyone's much more fatigued when they actually get there now, um, that sort of kept a bit of a limiter 
um, on how fast these guys can actually go. So to put that into triathlon, like you said, we've seen a bit of a change, you know, obviously through the COVID era, obviously with the PTO and the way they've done that system and supporting a bunch of guys to obviously take the sport more seriously. You know, that was the great thing about going to St. George. You realise very quickly that the, the level hasn't changed. Lionel was doing a performance like that back in 2017. You know, I think Reedy will back that up pretty pretty clearly. Um, he hasn't, he, Lionel, Lionel hasn't changed. You know, and in fact, his best marathon he did, I think, was in Copenhagen until, you know, I, and I think, I'm not even sure if he ran quicker in St. George. He might have been 30 seconds quicker or something. But even Arizona back in 2016, when he at the time broke the world record, I mean, he's been doing that performance over a massive period of time and all we've got now is a bigger concentration of these guys that are a capable of winning potentially but more so from say Lionel through to number 30 you know instead of there being three or four or five or six guys there's now 30 or 40 or 50 guys that can be in that mix so no the level doesn't (laughs) doesn't concern me at all I 100% and, and massively respect my opposition, but it just means you've got more guys around you now than maybe what you would have had before if you are one of those um, upper echelon guys that's going to be at the front of the race. There's just, um, there's just more people, you know, more guys at that level. And so, yeah, I don't know. It'd be a good one for Reedy's analysis on it, but that's, that's my take. That, um, yeah, I don't think we'll see anything really different in Kona this year than what we've seen for a long period of time i mean naturally we might see a bit of an improvement but it's not going to be uh, stratospheric or whatever the word is you know you're not going to see this crazy time all of a sudden and um if i mean if we do see a fast time it would be because of the conditions not so much because um the athletes are any better than what they've what they've been in the past so when you think about Kona this year, and and let's say hypothetically everyone who who could race it does race it. So we get yourself, we get Lionel, we get Patrick Langer, we get Christian Blumenfeld, Gustav Eden, Jan Frodeno, we get everyone there. You don't go into that race and and think like, well, there's just no way I can beat Christian and Gustav and Jan on the run. Because I, I, I feel like quite a few people would think that, like they would start a run with those guys and go, oh, well, fuck, I'm probably not going to win this here. Do, do you not have that mindset at all or or do you sort of in a way think that so you go well I've got to change what I do on the bike and I've got to try and make sure those guys are either not with me off the off the bike or they're just completely wrecked from what I've done on the bike or do you go and chat to anyone like do you go and grab a Sam Long and a, and a Lionel who you're not actually that worried about deep in the marathon and go boys let's just try and make this race crazy hot on the bike like you don't think like the 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 way those guys have changed the the running and Ironman will affect dynamics too much? No, for starters, they all come to me, those guys, and, and talk to me. It's funny because you'll get those guys come to me and talk to me about, you know, Sebi, et cetera, working together. I'm like, guys, it's an Ironman. It's not Ironman. What about the race? Um, and then you'll get, you know, people like yeah, those guys, to, you know, talk, come to me and say, well, if you come, you get up to us, don't bring everyone with you. And I'm like, I, I don't get this whole dynamics of you all working together and, if that's how you guys are all going to race, well, that's great because I'm going to race on my own and try and kick your ass. So, um, no, I'm not worried about any of them, to be honest, as far as at, at any point in the race. You know, I mean, I, I'm i going to do what I can do um, and uh, be as best prepared as I can be and uh, 
yeah and and if it's not enough it's not enough <laughs> i'm not going to worry about anyone else and their tactics or or whatever i'm obviously going to do what i can to make the race as hard as possible because i feel that that's the the the, the biggest chance i've got to win um and uh and i guess make people if possible race my race and um and we'll see what happens but uh yeah i mean i've my running you know i'm really excited to see where i can get with that in the next 10 weeks you know i definitely feel like i'm thanks to the bike race you know i have a different level of fitness because you obviously in triathlon you kind of you know constantly at your in your no i won't say comfort zone i mean it's hard but you're not overly extended at least i'm unable to really extend myself in training the way that i'm forced to in a bike race where you can't go oh no wait a minute my power's too high i gotta slow down here you just have to follow you know i mean you just you just have to chase these guys and you have to pull it back you know the gaps at that and you're cooked and but you got to shut it down you got no choice you got to figure it out um and what that does is just i think it's given me a different level of fitness and um and uh yeah and i'm really excited to see you know what that translates to now i go into this period of, of time where i can actually focus the training on on iron man but uh yeah yeah I, I i don't ever i've never wanted to be you know known as just the guy that's good on the bike you know if i could have my dream scenario i'd break the run course record in kona and and obviously the overall one in the process you know i want to be the best in all all the disciplines i've i've, I've accepted the fact i'll probably be never the best at the at the swim but um yeah if if i can <laughs> dictate the race on my terms and then execute a run that i believe i'm capable of then then who knows about that one so um yeah no i'm just looking forward to doing the work now and um and then uh getting there on the day and you know what i love about kona is it's the best you know all the best guys you know it's the biggest day in the sport everyone's all the best guys are at their best you know and we all know the date it's october 8th and if you're not ready i mean that's you know it's not like you haven't known about it so you know it's the one opportunity everyone gets to prove that they're the man and um yeah and they're the they're the moments in sport that uh that's why i do it so um yeah i'm certainly not going to go in with any apprehension that's for sure i'm just going to try and have a great swim and um and once I get out of the water, <laughs> figure it out from there, basically. I certainly don't plan past that. I never plan past the swim because <laughs> that obviously can change my race significantly depending on where I'm at. And I've just got one last question before we, we let you go here, Cam. This, I've, I've always had this idea that like the best triathlete, who is the best triathlete and what does that look like? And, and I always come back to, well, it's who would win this race if it wasn't actually a race, if it was a time trial and, and there wasn't any assistance in the swim or the bike or the run. And, and, and I reckon you're a guy who would thrive in that world. I'm, I'm curious, do you think that if, if this was a time trial, the Ironman game and not a, a, a mass start race, do you think that you would be better or worse at the sport? And, and do you think it would change who the best and worst at the sport are? Like, do you think that, that Yarm would have won Kona three times or do you think you would have beaten him at 20, in 2019 if it was a, a time trial? Do you think that would, that would change your, you, you know, your outcomes in triathlon? I am fascinated by, you know, the dynamics on the bike with what happens when I'm, either get away or trying to get to a group or 
because it seems that these packs at the front of races can can move at interesting speeds, yet if I get to them and then get away, all of a sudden they lose a huge amount of time, yet my power doesn't really change. So um, there's obviously something I think going on there with the media and um, all that, you know, following the race, which we which we need for coverage. Um, so, which is just part of the sport. In 2019, it was unusual wins in that it was head and tailwind. So the pack behind you yeah. was saving easy 40, 50 watts compared to when you yeah. get that usual crosswind. So it was a it was an unusual yeah. year, but. Yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, that's it. I was on a bit of a hide in nowhere that year because, yeah, you said you had the headwind, so you, and then you've got that vortex of bikes beside you, and then that big cocoon. So the guys tucked in behind you can can handle that, and then you've, um, and then when you get a tail breeze, you've got ten guys packed up behind you blocking you from the wind. So, but, um, but um, you know, I've learned that when I have the legs and I can get away, you know, you you very quickly get a gap. I mean, the other day in in uh in Vittorio Gastez, for example, you know, I, I caught the front group pretty quick. I had a decent swim. I actually tried to accelerate a few times and couldn't get away. And I was looking back and I was like, this is just I could see all the bike, you know, I could see that lined up and I was like, right, well I've I've just got to get away here. And and I did. And then as I said, I actually dropped my power. Yet for some reason I was riding away. So <laughs> I don't I don't really know um how good these guys are when uh when they'd have to ride on their own because they generally all ride on you know ride in a group um and and, you know lionel obviously is one that spends quite a bit of time on his own i think he'd be very very good at such a a format i definitely struggle in the swim i think having said that i guess my swimming training is done around the fact that you know you're in a group and you got to follow the pack so i guess if i had to change that i'd change it but um yeah it's it's a tricky one because the bike obviously and the dynamics of that and and the pack dynamics of it which is unfortunate considering it's meant to be you know iron man but it is what it is and like i said in the swim i get a chance to follow everyone else so the bike it's people's prerogative to sit in their in their group and and um yeah it's obviously pretty obvious that 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 plays into the dynamics of a race. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I mean, you talk about someone like Jan, you know, he's obviously got a pretty incredible record. So you know, he's a great champion sort of guy. You'd imagine, you know, he'd, he'd figure out the tactics um, with however the, whatever the race rules were. So I would imagine that it, it wouldn't change anything. He'd still be probably the best. He'd just have to have, um, yeah, um, train differently. <laughs> so he's now actually lives here in Andorra now. So uh, not that I see him much. I've invited him to go training a few times, but um, yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't. He seems to do his own thing. But um, be great if we see him in Kona, you know, at his at his best. Um, and um, yeah, obviously that's quite an exciting prospect with Patrick and the Norwegians and. Obviously, Magnus Ditlev is going phenomenally well as well for such a young guy. You know, you you have to look at him and think, "Gosh, what's the where's the potential for him?" Yeah, I mean, that's uh, he's really been really exciting to follow, and he's sort of, I guess, come on the scene. I've never raced with him. Um, you know, I've actually never met him, but you know, super impressive what he's doing. Um, so, yeah, I'm really looking forward to to meeting him and being on the racetrack with him. Um, 
and uh, yeah, see what happens. A few of those young guys like Sam Laidlow and Frederick Funk and Magnus Ditlev, these 23, 24-year-olds, Christian's only 27. It's quickly becoming a, a bit of a young man's sport again, not you you 38 and 40-year-old blokes like Reedy and yourself and Yarn. It'll be interesting to see whether it whether it is a, a, a young or an old bloke who, who wins Kona this year. But yeah, a- anyway, I reckon... Uh, yeah. I reckon we wrap it up there. It's been uh, it's been a great chat, and you're, you're you're the kind of guy that I think everyone who likes endurance sport, whether it be cycling or triathlon or or running, could just sit back and listen to tell stories and 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 hear about the the way your life works all day, Cam. So I reckon you should uh, definitely do a few more podcasts and and give the people what they want. It's uh, it's 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 just fucking it's awesome. Um, so can't yeah, every you. now and then you got to have you got to have new content there. You know that's what I said to Reedy. I mean, we talked about going on this show a while ago, and I said, "Oh, mate, I'm not really doing anything at the moment. You know, let me get through a bit of the cycling season, maybe do a triathlon, and then I think we've got a legitimate reason to have a chat." So you know, it's great timing, and as I said, I've just had a decent decent Ironman, and I guess I've put in perspective where I'm at with my preparation and why I'm quite happy with that. Um, I think rightly so, and going into you know the most exciting part of the year. So um, yeah, thanks for thanks for being patient and allowing me to come on when I was uh, when the time was right. No, my pleasure. I can't thank you enough. I, I honestly, I've said this to to other people. I'm not just saying this to you. If there was one person I could see, win, like I would like to see win Kona this year, it's you. I just think. I don't think it's it's for any other reason than nothing would shake up the sport more than Cam Worth winning winning Kona. I would just the the content afterwards, the post race interviews, and and like of course you'd come back on how they train and the interview you'd give around it would just be so funny. Like just hearing what you would say about about the whole situation would be you know it would make my year. So on a selfish note, to hear those those post race interviews and to see what what Lionel and, and Christian and all those boys have to say, I would really like you to uh, to win Kona for us. <laughs> well, it, it's funny what motive you know motivates you, and people can say all sorts of things. But I'll tell you what, that does definitely, uh, yeah, that makes me pretty excited to get in the car now, get down, get in the pool, and maybe do a few extra laps because um, uh, I appreciate that, and uh, it's definitely what I want to do. So. Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it everything I've got. I've got the opportunity. I mean, far out. I'm so fortunate in life in general, you know, to even be in this position after you know stopping sport, uh, you know, a number of years ago, and yeah, moving to the US and now I'm back here and um, doing what I'm doing. And uh, said, you know, dreamed of doing multiple sports at once. And it's exactly what I'm doing. I was driving home from San Sebastian the other day, and my truck and <laughs> just thinking wow how cool is this you know and uh yeah I, I genuinely am very appreciative for the position i'm in and um and obviously want to make the most of it so yeah i'll rip in for you <laughs> and thanks to you as well Reedy, for coming on and and teeing this up i know you and cam are, are lifelong friends and and grew up together so yeah, you, you you boys probably didn't get quite the catch up you uh you could have had because I was being a bit selfish asking every question I've ever wanted to ask Cam. But <laughs> thanks heaps for setting this up and and for coming on and co-hosting like always. Uh, all good, mate. Um, yeah, good to chat, Cam. And I'll uh, see you in Kona. I'm going to be there in a coaching role, looking after a few other athletes. So yeah, I'll see you then. And me, me, you you know what's going to happen, don't you? You're going to end up with. Happen to worry about me as well.
<laughs> I don't think so. As you know, I don't travel with an entourage like the rest. And there's nothing I laugh at more than these coaches on the side with their stopwatches as I come past. <laughs> Often, you know, I'm leading and they're just staring at me. And on that, like Bart Arnott's absolutely, he has turned up to a few races in Belgium just to say hello to me, as in on the bike. Um, during the last couple of years. Lovely guy. Always had a lot of time for him. And he was in Victoria. And I'll, I'll say this, as much as I want to say it's myself and wanting to pull it all together, he was instrumental in me being able to manage that because he was there coaching his athletes. He knew what I was going through and knew the exact right things to say. He's like, just be calm, Cam. Just, just be patient. You know, there's still so many minutes behind you just – Okay, when Nick was coming, Nick's running quick. Just don't, you know, don't worry about that. But behind that, they're really, you know, saying all the right things because I don't have anyone out there. You know, I mean, I go with Fallon, she'll, my wife, and she'll give me the, the odd split. But obviously, generally, I know where it is. But as far as, you know, how the race is playing out behind me, I've really got no idea. And, and those little bits of information can sometimes be extremely helpful, particularly when you're struggling. And so, um, Bart definitely saved my bacon that day. And um, so, yeah, Reedy, if uh, if the situation arises, I might need your help <laughs> to combat all those little stopwatch pushes. Yeah, as long as it's not Apo closing in on you, I'll, I'll tell you what you need to hear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't stare at me with a stopwatch and press it as I get close and say nothing. <laughs> I might run over and bop you on the nose. <laughs> the real question is who will be skinnier and leaner at Kona, Reedy, retired Reedy or or in shape Cameron because Reedy permanently walks around at about 2% body fat speaking of speaking of uh, being lean. <laughs> well, he's obviously chasing up the clients, isn't he? So you know who's going to look great. He's going to be down there checking, trying to poach all the age group women with his top off and yep. his little smugglers and Budgie yeah, smugglers. tanned and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, right, boys. Yeah. Have a good day. Thank you. See you, boys. Cheers. See ya.